Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to speak to Dr. Hugh J. Davies about his book titled The Wandering Army, The Campaigns That Transformed the British Way of War, just out in 2022 from Yale University Press. Um, This is a really interesting history that focuses on the British Army in the 18th and 19th centuries, but not necessarily as you'd expect purely in actual Britain, um, but rather looking at how the military gathered knowledge transformed a lot of what it was doing from campaigns quite literally all over the world. Um, So this is a really interesting book that helps us better understand um, organizational learning in a lot of senses, uh, the British history, particularly military learning, um, and a whole bunch of other things. So I'm very pleased to welcome you, Hugh, to the podcast to tell us about the book. Uh, thank you, Miranda. Thank you for the invitation. It's uh, delightful to be to be here um, and uh, to uh, participate in this this podcast. Very excited to talk about the book. Could you start us off by? Introducing yourself a bit and explaining kind of how did you come to write this particular book? Um, So I'm a reader in early modern military history at King's College London. I'm in the Department of Defence Studies, and uh, that is an academic department which is embedded in the uh, Joint Services Command and Staff College down at Shrivenham. So our principal Uh, educational output is professional military education uh, to serving officers in the British Army. Um, And that, in part, explains how I ended up um, uh, researching this area. Um, It's it's, um, the sort of thing I do on a daily basis, observing and participating in how the armed forces learn, and particularly the British armed forces. And I've noticed, I suppose, over the last 20 years or so, that um, informal learning is as important um, to uh, the British uh, armed forces as as formal learning. Um, and by informal, we we mean the the exchange of knowledge, ideas, uh, and thinking um, as a result of experience of personal reading choices uh, and uh, other forms of, of knowledge acquisition. Um, it's it's not, uh, uh, formal learning has its place, obviously, and it's an important part of, of professional military education today, um, but it is not the only part. And I think the informal aspect, um, which was so important in the 18th century, is is quite commonly overlooked today so that's uh, that's i suppose one of the reasons why i i uh, started to look into this area uh, another area is that i've uh, i'm my phd was in intelligence gathering in the peninsula war the development of intelligence networks so how information and um 
and knowledge was exchanged as a, in 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 a, in a formal sense in in that capacity was always of interest uh, and uh, uh, it's the sort of the the start starting point for the for the book's research really began with the publication of my first book which was a um a military biography of the duke of wellington and it was quite apparent when i was writing that book and in the in the years after i published it that uh the the story of how the british succeeded in the wars wellington commanded them in was not confined to the story of Wellington, obviously, and it certainly wasn't confined to his activities as the commander of the army. And I wanted to explore more broadly how the British army became so effective as a fighting unit in the uh, Peninsular War and uh, culminating at, at Waterloo. Um, and it seemed to me that that the, um, if you will, the biography of the the British army that fought in the Peninsular War actually begins in the middle of the 18th century. And so I wanted to look at how all of that experience um, uh, influenced the way the British the British approached warfare. Um, and there's a, a fourth, slightly facetious, facetious reason, which is that I wanted the excuse to go traveling everywhere. And um, and this this the research for this book provided that excuse. So I ended up studying in archives in um, uh, North America, in India and Pakistan, uh, and in Australia, to name uh, to name but a few. And so um, that wish was certainly fulfilled. That's a great collection of reasons. <laughs> so um, thank you for explaining them. Um, and I think that, you know, the practical side of it is, definitely an important consideration undertaking a project as big as a book um, and kind of neatly leads to my next question which is before we kind of get into some of the arguments of the book um, tracing this kind of thing I mean for one thing it's a lot of different campaigns which is a lot to figure out anyway but especially this idea of informal learning you know how does one especially historically figure out what was happening informally um, given that obviously kind of institutionalized top-down things leave maybe easier traces, how were you able to trace these sort of informal aspects and networks? Um, so that, that's uh, the, the sort of premise of that question is slightly placing the, the cart before the horse. It presumes that that's what I went looking for. Um, and I didn't. That's not That's not what I started looking for when I started um, looking at the uh, at the background of the British Army in the uh, in the 18th century, I was I was looking for the top down um, uh, uh, explanations for how ideas and ex- and experience gets gets sort of captured and and, tra- and transferred. Um, so I started with the generals and started looking at their at their um, uh, correspondence and papers in, in uh, various archives and you know, a lot of that you know the vast majority of that was really useful because it pointed me in certain directions but uh, um, as I was doing that research it, it immediately became clear that the, the, the what I thought would be a, a set of formal um, uh, uh, knowledge exchange um, mechanisms 
didn't exist um, and that it was all it was all informal. And so then I had to work out how um, how informal knowledge exchange occurred and uh, and the uh, the obvious I mean piecing it all together in in, in the 18th century was was pr pretty um, uh, pretty difficult because the only thing that exists for us to look at of course is what somebody happened to write down um, and and that means I'm limited to correspondence um, to journals and diaries and to um, uh, notebooks um, which uh, perhaps captured what someone was thinking or perhaps captured what someone had a conversation with another officer about because the the vast majority of informal exchange is obviously verbal. Well, not obviously, but it, it is verbal, um, and and there's no record of that. Um, when someone keeps a diary, they don't necessarily note down the co the content of conversations they had at dinner and uh, in the mess and whilst walking a historical battlefield. Even if they mentioned that they did walk a historical battlefield. They don't necessarily note down what they did talk about. Um, so I had to, well, I had basically happened upon a number of officers uh, who, who for whatever reason, maybe they were. Um, uh, 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 I mean, uh, there, there's one uh, one character in particular, a chap called um, Christopher Healy Hutchinson who was the younger brother of the second in command of the uh, Egyptian operation that, that was launched in, 1801, in 1801. Um, And I found his diary in Trinity College Dublin um, library. Um, and the, the person himself, he seems to be quite a sort of depressive, um, uh, uh, um, not particularly uh, easy character and and doesn't seem to have very many friends um so this this sort of the content of his diary was very much about i mean it was it was very detailed about the sort of mundane things that you wouldn't ordinarily expect to see in a diary and um, probably most people when they looked at this diary uh, uh, as in historians weren't particularly interested in what what he was saying because it was it wasn't particularly it wasn't about the battle, the battles that were fought. It wasn't about the campaign more generally. It's about the day-to-day -day, um, um, and uh, quite mundane activities of him and the, the few people who he, who he, he tended to spend time with. But what it, re it revealed was that in uh, in in mess dinners, um, there was quite often conversations about previous campaigns that the regiment had fought in. Um, that the regimental commanders had, you know, the, the 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 battles that they had fought in, or the campaigns that they had fought in before they had come to to uh, uh, the present regiment. So you got a sense that in that environment there was this ex these exchange of ideas that um, and 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 experience that wasn't noted down in in other forms of written of, of, of written correspondence and, and journal taking so um that then gave a sense that actually there's this whole 
wealth of activity going on, which we're just completely unaware of. Um, and uh, and so I started then looking for officers who were particularly interested in professional um, learning, um, and it was quite easy to find those because of the nature of the of of of, of, of the officers themselves. They put themselves into positions where they would uh, uh, you know, uh, have the opportunity to achieve success. So tracing their archives were, was was reasonably. Uh, straightforward and then there were others that i just found serendipitously um like healy hutchinson um and a a chap called thomas mitchell who um uh, was an ensign in the 95th rifles in the peninsula war but had uh um uh, when in later life went on to become the surveyor general of new south wales so his all of his papers are in sydney I went to Sydney for a different reason and ended up looking at his papers and um, and he had all of these notebooks from his time in the peninsula, which revealed, you know, his professional reading, uh, what uh, what influences thinking. Um, so that's that's how I came upon the the informal um, knowledge exchange. It, it then there was then a, a process of trying to piece all of this together of identifying connections between individuals, uh, starting with people who fought in the Seven Years' War in America, uh, where they had come from, what you know, what campaigns they they had fought in prior to going to America, so Scotland, Low Countries, in in the War of Austrian Succession, and then tracing linkages between those people and and uh, people who went on to fight in later campaigns in the Seven Years' War, and then into the American Revolutionary War. And then into the French Revolutionary War uh, and India and so forth. So identifying connections and sort of forming a, a sort of um, almost a family tree um, until we got into the into the uh, Napoleonic Wars. Um, so that's yeah, that's how it all pieced together. But it was never my intention to, to do that in the start. And there are a number of articles which pointed me in the right in the right direction methodologically. Um, uh, work by Alan Lester, um, uh, uh, David Lambert, Peter Merriman, um, uh, and a chap from New Zealand who's totally Ballantyne. Um, his name briefly escaped uh, escaped me. He t- they they talk about networks of knowledge exchange, webs of empire, um, how colonial knowledge um, uh, 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 gets exchanged. Um, in the 19th century, there isn't really stuff about it in the 18th century. So I use that, that, that those sorts of frameworks to try and piece together um, uh, how, how these uh, this this informal knowledge knowledge exchange and knowledge creation and recreation um, started happening. There was actually a whole wealth of other um, um, ideas as well that didn't make it into the book because. Um, you know, a methodological chapter of any length is probably going to be a big turn off for most people. Um, but all sorts of, of attempts to ex- explain how knowledge gets captured, uh, created, recreated, exchanged and, and mobilized. Uh, so um, you've got, um, well, again, my name escapes me. Now. Um, uh, somebody wrote a book about the, the Imperial Archive, about this notion that there's there's an archive of, not, of knowledge. Um, but 
uh, that the soldiers and administrators could could gain access to, and that and, and that was in the form of books, in the form of maps, in the form of of the terrain itself, um, and the local experience, both of predecessors and of indigenous populations. So that that all of that came together and and helped. Helped, yeah, um, well, some of those things um, I'm sure I'll probably be asking you about um, in a bit of detail. So thank you for kind of explaining how these things came together and how you looked at them, um, because there is uh, a lot of detail in the book, obviously. Um, I'm sure I don't need to, but I will point out to listeners that the book itself goes into rather a lot of detail, has lots of cool sources and stories, um, probably many of which we will not be able to get into. Um, but hopefully we can cover some of the main things. Um, and so I'd kind of like to, now that we have an idea of sort of how you came to this, um, methodologically how these pieces came together and what some of the strands were, um, get into sort of the, some of the core arguments. And one of which is um, that the military enlightenment that comes from these um, exchanges and informal learning and all of these different pieces, you've just mentioned maps, terrain, books, some of which I think we'll get to later, um, how is all of this, in a lot of ways, accidental? Mm-hmm. Um, so the military enlightenment isn't isn't my I, idea or or, or or my argument, and um, so uh, a variety of people argue that there is a military form of the enlightenment. Um, among them, um, uh, John Lynn, um, Christy Picacero, who did a wonderful book. Uh, a few years ago on the military enlightenment in France. Um, and so th- th- their work was I'm, I'm really sort of um, uh, uh, resting quite heavily on, on, on some of their methodological work and, and this construction of their arguments. But f- for, and actually more recently as well, um, I'm going to uh, see if I can find book because I will mispronounce his, uh, his name. Um, Eugene, uh, Miankinkov, who is um, a scholar at Swansea University, who wrote about war and, and enlightenment in Russia uh, in the age of Catherine, Catherine II. Um, and so you've got a number of scholars who who uh, look at the enlightenment from different national perspectives. It seems, it's, sorry, it certainly seems to me that um, for uh, those those nations for the officers and and armies of those nations when they engaged with enlightenment concepts it was very much deliberate um, so they uh, there was a, a, a specific decision to start uh, engaging with um, enlightenment concept, uh, concepts like sensibility humanity um, in thinking about war the war theorists you know, took those concepts and, and applied it to to the military and to and to war fighting. But the British, to to my as far as I can work out, because they're certainly in in written correspondence and and, and given that hardly any mil, uh, um, British officers sort of take the leap into becoming military theorists in the 18th century. In fact, none do. Um, it seems that there was no active decision to do that in the British Army. Um, they they did not engage with um, the the various concepts of the Enlightenment, um, and uh, and uh, the, any that did uh, did so very very informally. 
and they certainly didn't then write about it in in, in military theory, uh, you know, military theory or or treatise on the art of war. Um, so there was there was no deliberate decision to engage with those concepts. Uh, nevertheless, um, because of the emergence of enlightenment thinking and how humans learned, how humans thought, thought about knowledge, what what um, how important experience was to education and so forth. The these these concepts nevertheless started to influence the way in which British officers uh, thought about war, um, and so it, it it sort of occurred accidentally. Um, there was also the accidental uh, enlightenment aspect of the military enlightenment in that what what kicked it all off for the British was a spectacular defeat, well several spectacular defeats, uh, the first of at, uh, the Battle of Fontenoy in May 1745 um, where very traditional fighting techniques that had been employed in, since the age of Marlborough were comprehensively defeated by the French who were using much much more modern and dynamic fighting techniques, uh, including irregular tactics, the use of terrain uh, to to um, canalize enemy forces and, and all of this that the British just didn't really anticipate. And so um, as a result of that defeat, the British were forced to reevaluate how they were approaching uh, uh, war fighting, um, uh, how they were thinking about it. And this was not as it's, I've made it sound like there was a switch that that you know it, it, after 1745 it sort of turned towards Enlightenment thinking. It was nevertheless very gradual, and there were a series of of, of uh, further defeats, crescent pans in Scotland, um, and uh, and then most sort of um, probably um, dramatically. Um, a British force all but wiped out in the Ohio Valley in July 1755 by a, um, a band of irregular French and Native American warriors um, at the, at the, on the banks of the River Monongahela. Um, so that period of continuous defeat um, marked by um, a failure to really adapt and learn um, prompted the British to start thinking about war in a different way. And the only way that they could do with, do that was to engage with continental military thinking because they didn't have any of their own original thinking on the subject. The only the only military writing that the British produced was their own history, which was proving to be decidedly in, inadequate. So you start to get uh, much more interest in the writings of people like um, Follard, Fekier, uh, of uh, Sachs becomes very popular in the wake of his death in 1759, um, uh, and um, the, the uh, of Frederick the Great as well um, um, from the Prussian perspective. Um, so all, all, the, all of these U- European um, military concepts stand, start to uh, gain a foothold in British thinking, and. And the British then begin to think about how they can adapt those for their particular um, uh, scenarios, because European military thinking isn't particularly um, useful in the sort of terrain that the British were fighting in in North America, uh, particularly um, the um, 
the the sort of clo- close terrain of the backcountry of Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, and and New York, uh, and and so that they they had to adapt to those those situations. And then there was a combination of the incorporation of of earlier experience from um, relevant European theatres like Scotland and experience of, of fighting in North America combined with European military thinking such as that um, of Turpin de Crissy, for, for example, who who argued for a very sort of systematic approach to war fighting. Um, and you see that um, in by sort of 1758, 1759, very um, uh, uh, adapted versions of the of, of European thought combined with uh, a North American military experience produces a, a sort of unique British approach to war fighting, which then starts to gain uh, uh, gain a degree of success. Um, and then by 1760, um, a a, um, a massive um, victory over the French, which um, essentially eliminates the French Empire in North America, um, and uh, well, as we know, sets in train. The, uh, the the events that would eventually lead to the American Revolution, but nevertheless, this is uh, my uh, my argument is that this is the result of a combination of all of these factors, and it's it, there was never a point at which the British actively took the decision to engage with Enlightenment thought. That was always the secondary aspect to it. So that's why I labelled it a, uh, a an accidental military Enlightenment. That makes sense explained that way. Um, so thank you for taking us through it. Um, you you also call the Britain's military enlightenment asymmetric. Can you explain that one? Yes. Yeah, so um, and I don't think, the, uh, unlike the accidental aspect, I don't think this is particularly unique to the British, but um, but it's it's asymmetric because um, it results in in a different approach to warfare and indeed a different treatment of adversaries depending on who the adversaries are. Um, so the French and the Spanish, um, the Dutch, all are treated as as uh, professional, um, um, uh, almost colleagues on the battlefield. So the, the fact that they're fighting each other is becomes secondary to the fact that they're all soldiers in, in arms. Um, and uh, and once the job is done, then those uh, you know there's there's a great deal of compassion um, uh, deal, uh, uh, dealt out to to their former adversaries. And you see in the 1770s um, and indeed the 1760s, um, the British, uh, uh, in the wake of battles, actually respond very you, when injured. Uh, enemy troops are encountered on the battlefield. They're treated with great compassion and humanity. Um, and in the siege of Louisbourg, for example, in 1758, um, the the French send out supplies to to uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to, to the British um, in certain areas in order to to um, uh, help injured and sick feel more comfortable. And there's even a comical moment where um uh, uh, where uh the british send in a gift to the to the wife of the of the commandant of 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 uh, the, the fort in louisbourg who has been witnessed every morning um firing a cannon at the british 
Um, and so they send a gift to sort of celebrate her, her bravery and she sends out some, some pats of butter in return. Um, and these sorts of you know, weird um, uh, sort of camaraderie that exists between soldiers of enemy forces is, is one that is essentially limited to European forces. Um, the moment that the British encounter extra European for, uh, uh, adversaries, um, that compassion and humanity is is entirely absent um uh so um starting with the uh, american revolutionaries um they're seen as uh, as traitors to the to the to the british crown and so there's there's no uh, uh, requirement to sort of respect rights in the prosecution of the of, of the war. Indeed, I don't think many in the, on the British side at the beginning of the American Revolution think of the war as a war. They think of it as a as a, the, the suppression of a of a rebellion, which is illegal in its nature. And so, um, the, the sort of concept of humanity and compassion in war is 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 not present because this isn't uh, for the British. A, 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 a war in the sort of normal sense of the term, but the same. Uh, I mean, and then you see the the raids against American um, uh, harbors and ports, the destruction of American ability to sustain commerce, to uh, to you know farmland, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and the escalation of the war, particularly when it goes into the southern colonies in uh, of. Um, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and eventually Virginia. Or, or you, it becomes an extremely brutal um, war marked not only by um, conventional operations, but by, by, by really quite vicious levels of insurgent fighting. Um, and the same holds true as well for Native, Amer- Native American adversaries. There is, and this is incidentally a product as well of Enlightenment thinking, which is that you know, has it you know, one one uh, um, sort of strain of American, uh, sorry, of Enlightenment thought is that the Native American is incapable of of, civ- of civility, um, and as a result, must must, must be the only way to to bring them to 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 heal is to treat them with brutality, and so you see. Um, a, a willingness on the British part to treat enemy Native American nations in a really quite brutal fashion, um, and th- and this extends as well uh, it, it, uh, to the use by uh, Jeffrey Amherst of uh, you know famously the, the first use of biological weaponry with the uh, blankets infected with smallpox sent to uh, uh, to um, um, adversary. Native American villages in an attempt to weaken um, uh, the adversary's will to fight. Um, and there's even a sense that uh, the brutality and savagery that, that you know, quote unquote, their, their words of the, uh, of the Native Americans infects their allies. So it infects the French and the notion that the French become more brutal and and more savage in their in their approach to war fighting means that that the that there is justification for treating the french who are serving in north america at the end of the 
in the 17 certainly in 1759 and in 17 to some extent in 1760 with the same sort of degree of brutality um it is it, justified by this argument um and uh, that you know it becomes an extreme i mean wolf for example who's famously seen as a as a, a you know a british hero um for his capture of quebec uh, at the cost of his own life in september 1759 in the siege leading up to that that battle um which is months long and 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 very nearly a british defeat um he wages a really quite brutal campaign of terror against the population of of quebec province writ large not just the city the city itself is bombarded civilian set known civilian sectors of the city are deliberately targeted and farms and um, uh, outlying villages are also uh, destroyed in an attempt to force the population to uh, to to turn their backs on the french and all of this we know you know it's 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 we know this is not a successful uh, 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 means of of uh, of uh, defeating an, uh, an adversary population, um, and the following year, a completely different approach is is adopted. Eventually, um, when um, um, uh, uh, amnesties are granted, um, uh, there's no threat of of um, Making of outlawing Catholicism, for example, which a lot of French citizens were were concerned about um, under British rule, and so all of these um, uh, 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 offers to try and bring the French population, the Arcadians and the Canadians, on side, actually pays quite significant dividends in 1760. Um, but the, so that's what I mean by asymmetric: is that you've got a, a uh, increasing levels of compassion and humanity uh, directed at um, European adversaries, certainly in Europe and to a certain degree in in, in North America, and then uh, uh, increasing levels of brutality justified by by um, uh, Enlightenment thinking, um, uh, 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 sort of um, doled out by the British uh, to their um indigenous uh, adversaries and you see this as well it's not it's not limited to north america you see this in india you see this ag- later in the uh, early 19th century in australia as well and uh, sort of p- p- looking forward into the 19th century is 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 certainly the case in africa as well um so it's 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 it, it's not limited to the 18th century and it's not it's not limited to north america but so it's it's pretty extensive Hmm. Um, thinking about kind of some of those examples and of course what you've mentioned a bit already um, you've explained sort of the reading side in a lot of senses and how reading was important but also how it really changed um, and engagement with continental writers became a much bigger part of this process Um, but I wanted to ask as well about kind of some of the other methods I suppose of learning uh, that you alluded to earlier um, maps and battlefields so maybe we could start with battlefields why was kind of how was this a way of learning um and how did this as a method of learning uh, how was this impacted by this process of the military enlightenment uh so uh, well i explain how i how, how i discovered it um i 
as a military historian who works at the Staff College, I do staff rides, which are it's a posh term for for battlefield tours with the with the uh, with the military. Um, and I thought this was a modern concept, perhaps post Second World War. Uh, it turns out not at all. Um, this is something that the British Army. I don't think it's just the British Army. I think um, European armies more generally did on a fairly routine basis um, uh, in the uh, certainly in the 18th century, possibly earlier. Uh, I found notebooks of um, and diaries of, of officers who were doing a, a grand tour of Europe um, who decided to sort of uh, uh, I'll quote Sarah Goldsmith, who wrote a brilliant book on, on the subject, um, uh, a Marshall Grand Tour. Um, so take the opportunity to visit um, battlefield, historical battlefields and uh, fortresses, European fortresses in particular, uh, as they made their journey around the traditional Grand Tour highlights of um, you know, Paris, Rome, Venice, etc. Uh, and so as a result, they sort of, uh, if they're going to go, if you're going to go to a battlefield, you're going to want to know about the, uh, the the history of the battle, about the history of the of the war that results in the battle, um, and if you're wealthy enough, then you may well take along a veteran of the battle. Um, and so, you, I mean, most people don't do that. Most people just go along to a fortress and say, "Look at those walls, aren't they big?" Sort of thing. But there's there's a sizable number of individuals who take the opportunity to really investigate. Um, uh, a the the uh, historical battlefield that they they happen to be visiting, um, and I suppose it's it it, it it occurs because the opportunity is there as a result of doing the grand tour, um, uh, and and because there are officers who are increasingly professionally minded. Um, and want to learn from history, and want to, and I think this is the important shift that occurs in the in the in in the period of the Enlightenment. They don't just want to learn it by rote; they want to analyse what happened. Um, so you've got some officers just go along and look at the battlefield and say, "Well, that's where so and so did this," and then they and then they did that, and and they, so they just learn about the battle. Um, others go with a very particular interest in analyzing whether or not the decisions that were taken were the right decisions, uh, what factors influenced the decision-making at the time, why on earth someone would make such a terrible decision, um, it, which in hindsight is, is, is obvious, why, why they happen to make those decisions. And so you get, uh, you get a discussion underway about why um, a, a bad decision is taken, what's the influence on, on those thinking, of course, pressure, of decision making under fire uh, are, are all uh, one of those things that are considered, um, and we know this happens because one or two officers um, uh, uh, make quite extensive notes on on these sorts of battle battles. Among them, uh, James Wolfe, who in 1751, when he was uh, commanding a regiment at the in Inverness. Um, and he writes quite disparaging comments about Inverness, and the only interesting thing to do is go and visit the battlefield of Culloden, which he himself had fought at. So it was particularly interesting because you've got a you've got a veteran of the battlefield of the battle going back to the battlefield to figure out what happened. And uh, it's interesting because his his 
revisiting of the battlefield completely changes changes his view of the of the progress of the battle. He thinks that many of the decisions taken by Cumberland, who commands at the ba- uh, at the Battle of um, of Culloden, and not necessarily the right decisions. And many of the regimental and and and, and brigade commanders also make poor decisions. And so he, he leaves the battlefield with a completely different view of it, and writes a letter to his father explaining uh, explaining that thinking. Um, and he also justifies his decision to go because it's the opportunity to learn from the past, follow in the footsteps of of former victories and learn from the failures of of, of, of our predecessors um and so it's it's a it's an interesting sort of insight into wolf's thinking wolf as well is very heavily interested in in european military thought even before the sort of major defeats of the of the seven of the 1750s and is arguing for new officers who joined the army to you know the to read certain books like Frederick the Great's uh, writings, like uh, Fekier, like Follard, Turpin de Cusset, um, and 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 so it, it makes sense that he would also think critically about uh, about the battlefields. Um, uh, then later in the 1740s, you've got another um, uh, well by this point a general uh, Henry Clinton who would go on to become. The commander-in-chief of America of British forces in the American Revolution, um, he, with his um, close friend Henry Lloyd, visit. Um, they, they, uh, it's not a grand tour, um, although it sort of becomes a martial grand tour. They, they go on a, a a tour of European battlefields on their way to the uh, to the Russo-Turkish War, which uh, is taking place in 1774. Uh, Henry Lloyd has been commissioned as a uh, as an officer in Catherine the Great's army, um, and he's on his way to to, to take part in that that uh, uh, those battles. And so on the way, he invites uh, uh, some of his friends, among them Henry Clinton, to visit these battlefields. Um, and uh, I mean, there's there's lots of nice little anecdotes, and it sort of proves the humanity of these individuals. In that, you know, they they uh, um, uh, they pay a, a band of you know a quartet who are playing um, some music in uh, in Bruges just to follow Henry Lloyd around because they know that it'll it'll irritate him and make him increasingly grumpy. So I've got this this image of Henry Lloyd walking around. Uh, walking around Bruges with a band having been paid to to, to continue to play behind him, which um, uh, is just an amusing thought on its own. Um, but you know, they then visit various battlefields, um, among them uh, Bergen, uh, which um, uh, Clinton makes quite significant, quite detailed notes on in uh, in a series of notebooks in which he basically concludes that if he had had anything to do with the decisions to fight there, he wouldn't have fought a battle there because it was, it was more than, more than likely to result in defeat. Uh, And this is, this is quite a big change in that they're actually analyzing the battle and whether or not the decisions were the right decisions. And Lloyd is, is partly responsible for this. So as well as being a general, a British general in the Russian army, Lloyd had written a history of the, um, late war in Germany, as it was called, the history of the Seven Years' War, and that was published in the 1760s. Um, and this, as 
I mean, this is sort of the, the beginning of new military history in that Lloyd isn't just recounting the events of the of, of the campaigns. He's analysing the decisions that have been taken and not just the, the military decisions, he's analysing political decisions as well. He's looking at the political seat of war at, and the geographical seat of war. He's trying to understand why the war happened and why the war was uh, was executed in the way it was. Out of that, he derives a quote-unquote philosophy of war, um, in which he argues that wars should be fought in a semi-scientific fashion, that the decision to fight war is often based on political uh, uh, and social um, 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 factors, um, but the way to prosecute a campaign should be rooted in, in science, comes up with a concept known as lines of operation, which modern military personnel would find familiar, um, and uh, you know, argues that it's possible to plan an operation down to the to the to the minute, basically, by calculating how fast a uh, a battalion of soldiers can march, because you know how big their pace is, um, and you know how fast they march, so you'll be able to work out uh, uh, almost to the um, to the minute, how how quickly um, a, a battalion of soldiers would be able to get from A to B, um, and this isn't just pie in the sky thinking. This is actually applied later on in the Peninsula War. Robert Crawford does exactly that and does it to, with incredible accuracy. Um, uh, but so you, back to back to Lloyd, you get you get the sense that that there's a real shift in the way that the uh, that the British. Um, and it's not just the British; the other other European forces are doing the same thing. But I'm focusing on the British. Um, they're really changing the way in which they're thinking about history, and uh, about how um, how militaries should fight should fight wars. Um, and visiting battlefields is a great way to to engage with that because there it is. It's a, it's a it's an open it's an open book ready for for analysis. And if you've got if you happen to have a history of that war or you have a veteran of that war or both, then you can have a really dynamic discussion about what's going on. Um, and that certainly is not confined to modern day. That's that's something that was that was surprisingly common, um, but little known about from the 18th century. And how do sort of using maps fit into that? Is that a sort of similar thing of, well, if you can't go to the battlefield, at least you can look at a map? How do maps fit into this learning process? Well, so maps have a slightly different trajectory in this, in this period because maps, the, the, the drawing of map, maps and the, and the basic design principles of, map, of maps in the 18th century, as a result, arguably, of the Enlightenment, begin to transform. So um uh, maps until that point had had no standardized symbols um until about the you know the middle of the of the 18th century they had had no standardized coloring um there was no standard way of drawing terrain features um uh, and so a, a map would become an extremely subjective concept depending on the on the cartographer the particular cartographer who was who was drawing the map maps were also used for very different purposes so you had maps that would be for military purposes they try and explain the course of battle and you'd see you, you can see the infantry lines and the cavalry uh, uh, um, um, units clearly donated on the uh, donated de- denoted on the battle 
on the battlefield on the map. Um, others were used as pictorial representations, so this was more often than not used to explain uh, the, the course of a war to the public. So they would be published in in magazines and and, um, and, uh, and other print mag- uh, publications, um, and they would quite often be rather than uh, and a sort of bird's eye view looking down on the battlefield, it would be a, a, a very much a sort of three-dimensional three uh, view of the battlefield. So you start trying to incorporate some, some perspective into it, you try and incorporate um, uh, 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 terrain features, trees, forests, water, um, and, uh, and try and make it so that a human eye could understand. So it was a, a, almost a human eye level view of the of, of the battlefield um useful for the public not so useful for military personnel to try and analyze what's going on um and then you've got the the really sort of um hastily drawn sketch which um only really means something really to the person who drew it and the person he drew it for um but if if analysed alongside other maps, might be might be quite useful to the historian or, or to others at the time. But so it's the first two maps that are interesting for types of maps that are interesting for our purposes. Um, but uh, in the sort of middle of the 18th century, a sort of standard um, set of symbols started to become commonplace. Uh, they're the ones, you know, very similar to the ones that we that uh, military historians would recognise today. Um, infantry units denoted, <laughs> I keep on saying denoted instead of denoted, denoted with the in a with a rectangle with a line through it, and cavalry with rectangle with a rectangle with a cross in it, an arrow or a or a, or a pointer at the top to to denote the direction in which the unit was moving. Um, and if the infantry was arrayed in a line, then they'll be drawn in a, in a line. You've also got the standardized use of coloring. I, I had no appreciation that this was so so uh, difficult to achieve, but um, um, I happened to meet a historian, uh, Benedict Miyamoto, who uh, was looking at the increasing standardization of, of, of pigments in the 18th century and how this was used to you commonly use the same colors we commonly used to denote enemy forces to to uh, denote uh, friendly forces to uh, denote waterway trees and foliage and so forth so uh you get a common appreciation of you know, you, you uh, by the sort of 1760s 1770s you could you could pick up a map and no matter your level of literacy once once the 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 symbology had been explained to you um you could read the map you could read any map um so it became a way of conveying military knowledge and experience and history to a much wider um, um population of, of of individuals and maps became a really popular way of discussing um, military history campaigns and experience and what you know how what might adapt these approaches in the future and Cumberland started um, a huge what became a huge map collection um, it's the basis of George III's um, uh, map collection which is held in the Royal uh, the Royal Collection in Windsor Castle um, I had the great joy of, of visiting it a few times before the pandemic um, but it's actually all been digitized um, and 
um, it's militarymaps.com or .co.uk, I can't remember the exact website, but um, uh, ha, is all of the maps of the George III collection now be digitized in, in, in quite some detail. You can you can have a look for yourself and, and go into, you know, really, <laughs> indeed, probably better detail than you could if you're actually holding the actual map in your hand. Um, but uh, what Cumberland was interested in doing was um, uh, looking at uh, at the maps uh, with with um, friends, peers, subordinates, and when he became ranger of um, of Windsor Great Park, uh, he he extensively renovated what is now Cumberland Lodge in order to incorporate a map library, and. Uh, uh, he you know, completely redid, redid the library with with large chairs for uh, viewing maps, with large tables for viewing maps, with with um, uh, large pillars that you could then hang maps on, um, and he would have um, map soirees almost where uh, where um, selected officers would come and discuss uh, a map and discuss the course of a war using maps, um, and you know, it, it, that was bequeathed to George III um, when Cumberland died. And not that George III was George III at that point. He was still, um, I guess he was uh, son of the Prince of Wales. Um, but, um, and then George III's son, the Duke of, Duke of York, who later becomes Commander-in-Chief, is also very interested in the use of maps and actually sets up a series, well, attempts to set up a series of formal um, map libraries, um, among them the Depot of Military Knowledge, uh, which only lasts about a year or so, um, in central London, and um, uh, uh, as a way of um, using history to help plan future military operations and learn from the past in a way that will help military personnel overcome the challenges that, that their predecessors have faced more more quickly. Um, so, yeah, maps are a really important tool of conveying military knowledge in a different way to a much wider audience than a book can, and certainly to that, you know, you have to be pretty wealthy in order to visit battlefields of Europe um, as part of a sort of Marshall Grand, Grand Tour. So that's not really an option for most people. Um, and and maps are a, a really helpful and easily accessible alternative. Mm. So sort of on that theme um, of available to more people, um, how did this sort of more somewhat informal, but um, also kind of circumstantially uh, impacted, right? If you had enough money to go on the grand tour, if you're in the right place at the right time, um, how did that kind of transition to become more formalized or institutionalized such that, you know, staff rides are now part of the college today, not up to some soldier who happens to know the right veteran? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this happens um, very gradually and then very suddenly. Um, so f- the formalization of what was a f- an informal educational process um, is that there are gradual attempts to try and uh, try and create centers of learning, the depth of military knowledge, for example, some of which fail um, up until the, the close of the 18th century. Um, and then in 1799, a, cur- a very um, 
innovative and industrious colonel um, John Lamarchon writes a memorandum to the Duke of York arguing for the establishment of a royal military college. Um, the, the basis of this is um, he is a cavalryman. He has, um, in the 1790s, recently uh, completely revised cavalry doctrine. He's designed a new cavalry sabre um, after analysing the uh, injuries of British cavalrymen in the early 1790s and concluding that many of the injuries that the British cavalrymen had sustained were, in fact, self-inflicted, self, uh, um, not deliberately self-inflicted, accidentally in the, in the course of a battle as they're trying to swing their sabre, but such is the nature of the of the of the doctrine at the time that it causes themselves more harm than it does their adversary. So he he looks at these and and, and devises a new approach to you know very subtactical in a way, um, and rolls that out for his own cavalry unit, and then argues successfully for it to be rolled out more generally across the cavalry in the British Army. And so he's then responsible for transmitting these ideas across, across he sets up a, 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 a series of schools, um, you know, one-off encampments and so forth to do cavalry training. And in the course of the sort of 1790s, really transforms the way in which the cavalry operates. And he thinks, wouldn't it be a good, I mean, this is paraphrasing, wouldn't it be a good idea if we did this with the British Army as a whole? Uh, it's not just the cavalry that needs to have more formal education and training it should be the british army as a whole and not just in terms of new officers but also officers who are in the middle of their careers and moving from unit you know subunit command into something much much higher uh, uh, so um he's also aware from uh, colleagues such as Robert Crawford, who I mentioned earlier on, and their experience of, of observing the Austrians in the in the 1790s, that other, the other European forces have much better staff systems than the British do. Uh, indeed, in the 1790s, the British have to rely on Austrian staff officers to do their staff planning for them, which is highly embarrassing for the British. And and so he concludes that the only way to overcome this is to uh, essentially create the first British staff college. And he does this, uh, he writes this memorandum to the Duke of York, who is, like the Duke of Cumberland, extremely you know, in favour of the profession, profession of arms. He's himself very innovative, he's very pro-new uh, ideas and, and, and helps set up light infantry schools and so forth. But is sceptical of the Royal Military College because he thinks that organisational inertia will mean that it just won't succeed. Um, the British officer doesn't need, you know, or rather, uh, the British officer thinks they don't need um, education in the middle of their career because they're already naturally brilliant, um, and so on and so forth. And 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 so he's extremely dubious about it. He also doesn't think that the government's going to willingly spend money on educating people who should already be pretty good at their jobs. Um, nevertheless, he's he's convinced and. Um, agrees to the establishment of the Royal Military College at High set up appropriately enough, appropriately enough at the Antelope Inn in uh, High Wycombe. And um, over the course of the next 10 years, uh, a curriculum is designed which um, balances mathematical study, drawing and cartography skills, uh, military history, and uh, theories about the art of war 
um, in uh, in order to train what becomes known as the scientifics. So we're not talking here about the famous commanders like Wellington, um, but of the people who translate Wellington's uh, orders into something that, that the rest of the army is going to be able to understand. Um, and principal among those is, is probably George Murray, but there are you know, hundreds in the end by, by, by the 1810s who have gone through uh, the Royal Military College. Amongst um, La Marchant's uh, memorandum uh, is um, a, a, quote, a quote that argues that um, once a year, the, the officers of the Royal Military College should travel abroad to this. So is, this is expected to be within peacetime, obviously. Um, travel abroad to to visit the courts of the, of of, um, uh, of the Grand Courts of Europe and to witness the militaries of uh, of those courts on manoeuvre. Uh, so visit the reviews and, and and the encampments in Europe and so forth, and to visit the sites of great military victories um, in order to learn from them. And so he's arguing, uh, this actually doesn't happen to begin with because it's far too expensive. Uh, of course, there's a war going on in Europe, but he's arguing that actually as part of the staff college curriculum, officers should visit um, the battlefields of Europe on a, on what essentially would be termed today as staff right. Um, so, it's yeah he's he's arguing from the very off from the you know the formation of the first staff college that that um, visiting battlefields and understanding how um, and analysing how battles have been fought in the past uh, would be a central element of any professional education that officers in the army should should uh, acquire. Um, uh, this of course has impetus in a war um, because. We need to learn how to fight and learn how to win. Um, but in the wake of the end of the Napoleonic Wars, there's the peace dividend. Um, the army is is uh, um, significantly stripped stripped down, and um, the the number of officers that attend attend the Royal Military College actually uh, uh, gets very small, and the military college itself then transfers to Eventually to Sandhurst, um, uh, where where it is um, where it, you know, it, 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 the Royal Military College, um, sorry, the Royal Military Academy uh, now uh, um, uh, continues to, to be, and next door to that, of course, is Camberley, uh, which is the site of the Army Staff College, which was transferred to Shrivenham uh, twenty years ago. And that takes us right up in a lot of ways to the work you're doing now. So um, what a lovely place to kind of sum up, um, which leaves me really only with my last question. Um, the book obviously has just come out, but you did talk a little bit at the beginning that kind of your first book sort of led in some ways to this one. Um, so I'm wondering, is there a sort of next project on the horizon we might get a sneak peek of? <laughs> well, uh, uh, so um, well, the, the, the sort of final chapter of, the, of this book looks at how the um, Part of the knowledge and and the networks that allow these these this knowledge ex- exchanged actually degrades in the sort of early nineteenth century, um, and there are a number of reasons for this: you know, circulation 
is limited because soldiers tend to be deployed for longer periods of time. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a real worry that military knowledge and and the, the success of Britain's experience in the Napoleonic Wars will be uh, accidentally leaked to potential adversaries. So previous um, exchanges between um, you know, informal exchanges between uh, um, officers of the British Army and potential adversaries or allies become extremely limited. Indeed, the British authorise the arrest of European and British officers who are serving with, uh, or rather training the Sikh forces in the in, in the 1840s, 1830s and 1840s because they're so worried about the Sikhs becoming an, an effective European fighting force. Um, all they succeed in doing is actually failing to learn about the Sikhs as a result, and, and what you get is a, um, the, you know, the Sikhs learn it from from somebody from the Italians and the French instead, and and when the British eventually face the Sikhs on the battlefield, they they face a, a, a really effective European European trained fighting force, which delivers a, a substantial bloody nose to the British army. So, uh, and you've also got cons- your conservative um, generals who want to. Rest not rest on laurels, but but you don't want to engage in technological transformation because they we've learned how to fight with the with the musket. Um, we know we're we're very effective as a fighting force with a musket. Why on earth would we want to ad- adopt a new weapon like the um, uh, the mini rifle, which has a much larger range? We need to completely work out how to fight those uh, you know new tactics and so forth and uh, you know that's all too much trouble we should we should you know do what we what we know to do well um and all of this really stymies innovation and adaptation in the face of new technology in the face of new adversaries um the british army get very good at fighting um particular adversaries in particular locations but that experience doesn't really get transferred outside of the that theater and so the, uh, all of this means that by the time the British are fighting the crime in the Crimean War in uh, the 1850s, that they have no idea how to deal with the new the new circumstances with the new technology. Um, officers refuse, for example, to allow soldiers to to uh, fire their mini rifle, which has a range of about 400 yards, as opposed to the range of a musket, which has 30 yards. Um, until the enemy is close enough, until the enemy is 30 yards away, because that's the range of the musket. Um, and uh, and if they fire early, then there's like, you know, if, if they were firing with a musket, then they would miss. But with a mini rifle, the soldiers are, <coughs> are more likely to hit their adversary, but they're, they're told not to fire and you get these extremely bloody battles. Um, eventually, the soldiers work out for themselves as Indeed, they do in the 1750s when they're fighting in North, in, in North America. A lot of the innovations and adaptations take place as, around, as a result of bottom-up um, innovations. Um, and this happens again in the Crimea where uh, the British soldier works out. They don't need to wait until the soldiers, until the adversary soldiers are you know, within 30 yards. They can, they can use their, their rifles to, to shoot them at quite some distance. Um, and so you see this this happen uh, organically rather than as a result of top down orders in the in the uh, in the Battle of the Armour. Um, so that's all a long way saying that the next project is probably going to look at 
the British Army from the 1850s uh, towards the First World War. I don't know how far I'm going to go with that. Um, I have previously said I wasn't going to do that because there are plenty of scholars who work in this field. Um, uh, and um, But I, I think that combining an analysis of the British experience, the same way that I did with this with this book, looking at the British experience in India, in Africa, in Australia, um, and how that influences military thinking, combined with European, you know, European military thinking, army reform, modernization, the emergence of new technology, which is a, a much more significant factor than in in the period of 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 the wandering army um how all of you know I, I, that's i think a very tempting project to undertake um i should caveat of course that i'm utterly exhausted uh, having r- written this book it was a marathon to write i hope it wasn't a marathon to read but um but it's uh, it took a lot I, it's very enjoyable you know i i i i, I I researched in some wonderful places and and got to know some wonderful people as as a result. Um, <clears throat> and it, the the research for it took took ten years in total. I'm not sure I'm ready to undertake quite such a feat yet, but I am increasingly tempted. I'm uh, regaining some energy, I suppose, having spent um, uh, about a year away from uh, away from this now. Well. Um... You might need some time to recover, uh, but I think that readers, listeners might be quite uh, interested in a lot of the detail you were able to uncover in all that research. So as a reminder for our listeners, the book is titled The Wandering Army, The Campaigns That Transformed the British Way of War from Yale University Press. Um, And it has just come out, though you've obviously had to submit it to them um, a bit further in advance than that. Um, But thank you very much, Hugh, for taking us through uh, some of the highlights of the book. Great. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much for uh, uh, having me along for this podcast. It's been very enjoyable.